0: Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at the innovation expedition, what Christopher Columbus, Edmund Hillary, and other famous trailblazers throughout time can teach us about corporate innovation, what to take into account when figuring out who to invite on your own innovation journey, and the mindset necessary to complete successful innovation efforts. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Heiss van Wolfen, author of the innovation bestseller, The Innovation Expedition, a visual toolkit to start innovation. Heiss is the founder of the fourth innovation method, which is used to create new products, services and business models, and has had more than 35 successful implementations in Europe. Heiss was one of the first 150 influencers chosen by LinkedIn, where he currently has close to 200,000 followers and posts frequently on innovation-related topics. For the last two years, he has been named one of the top 40 innovation bloggers in the world by innovationexcellence.com. Welcome to the podcast, Heiss.
1: Yeah, thanks, Will.
0: So let's start off today with a little background on your book. Which is part history lesson and part guidebook to innovation. How did the idea for the book come to you?
1: Well, it came to me by my methodology, which is um, which is actually in the form of an expedition. And um, you know that so in my 40s, my professional life and my hobby they merged. So I was an innovator, working at companies trying to innovate myself as a marketeer in the food sector. Later on, I became a consultant, and I always tried to make companies more innovative, which was really very, very hard, especially the front end of innovation, you know, it's, so how do we start innovation the right way? Now, I, I started to, um, to develop a methodology on that out of frustration, because it was so hard to do, and there was, I tried to structure it. And then I found a kind of a structure and I thought, okay, how can I, which metaphor can I use? And I was always a huge travel book fan. As a small kid, I, you know, I was fascinated by what people did exploring the world. And actually, you know, it's a great metaphor for innovation too. So the fourth methodology is made in the form of an expedition. And I reread all my old favorite traveler books. And that's why when I wrote a book on innovation, you know, it had to be uh, it had to be a travel book. And you know, I'm greatly inspired by guys like Amundsen or Neil Armstrong or um, or you know all the great explorers like Columbus or Magellan from the 15th and 16th century.
0: Okay, great. And yes, yeah, some great anecdotes from great explorers throughout time: uh, Columbus, Edmund Hillary, m- many, many more. Uh, sprinkled throughout the book. And there's some very prescriptive things in the book when it comes to team size and the kinds of people you should bring along on your innovation journey. So you cited a study from the Mayo Clinic, for example, that's very specific about the different types of people you should have on an innovation team. Can you share what those types are? Yeah,
1: sure, sure, Will. Um, The Mayo Clinic, they have uh, nine types, Um, within a team kind of nine personality types and um, number one is the visionary right it's the force behind creating the world as it could be Um, you have the idea generator they have the iterator um, the customer anthropologist, the tech guru the producer the communicator the roadblock remover and the future caster so nine different types, and it was the first time that they were so specific. So that's why I, that's why I like uh, this uh, typology. Uh, my experience is that you know you should have a team as uh, as varied as possible. So the more variation you have in personalities, in experience, in age, in gender, the better it is
0: sure and and it sounds like innovation teams are not necessarily small teams it's not something that you can put a a two or three two or three person kind of specialist team on you need to have at least nine types you have a specific number which is kind of interesting to see in the innovation space because it sounds like if you ask people the perfect size team they'll say well you know it depends on the situation but you say it's it's 14 with 12 core members and two non team members so what makes a dozen the perfect size, or 14 when you have the new, t- new uh, non-core team members? What makes that the perfect team size for innovation?
1: Mm, there are two things which are important. So the bigger, the bigger the team, the more varieties of minds you have there. So the more diverse new products or new concepts you will generate. And there's a second big advantage. And that is ownership. If you are with a team of 12 to 14 people, there is huge ownership. Now, if I try to convince you of my idea, well, you know, you will say, oh, guys, great idea, but, and then all the buts come. But when you create it together, you know, it's your child you're creating. So that's the ownership is, is, very, is very good in a team of, uh, of uh, 12 to 14 people. Because, you know, you, you can invent alone, but you can't innovate alone. In a big corporation, you need a lot of people to work on your in- innovation. Now, why isn't the team any bigger? Well, you know, that's difficult for the ideation process itself. So my ideal team size is around 12, 14, you know, might be 16. And then you still have, can have one group and one ideation process.
0: Okay, and so you cover in depth in the book the, the fourth Innovation Method, and you talked about that a little bit at the intro. So fourth is an acronym that covers the five stages of the method that you teach to create innovative products and services. Can you go over each of the five steps a little bit and talk about what they entail? Yeah,
1: sure, sure. Now, it's um, FORTH is an acronym. It stands for Full Steam Ahead, Observe and Learn, Raise Ideas, Test Ideas, and Homecoming. It's a structured start of the of innovation, you know, and normally it would be chaos. Now where would those great ideas come from? And here you start in five phases. Mm, it's an expedition of 20 weeks with a team of around 14, 15 people. Mm, they don't spend their time full time on it. You know, it's around one half day a week. And you start with full steam ahead. Now, this is very important because at Fool's Team Ahead, there are two things. You make your innovation assignment. Now, where do we want to go? Do we want to climb Mount Everest or we want to conquer the South Pole? Right? The team you're you're taking with you will be quite different. And here you decide, okay, so what do we expect from innovation? But also very smart. Do we, it, does it has to be evolutionary or revolutionary? Do we want our new concepts introduced in 2000? 15 or 2018. Uh, how much how much revenues a new product must bring in year three after introduction. So here you make your goal very concrete, tangible, and you get the team um, you get you get the team in. The second phase is observe and learn. Now you can't have new ideas if you don't have new insights. So here it's all about getting new insights. It's postponing your judgments and go out there and explore, explore again, you know, all kinds of innovation directions. And as you are out there in the market, talking to all kinds of persons, you know, you'll get a lot of inspiration and you get a lot of ideas. Now you're not, not allowed to share them yet and just write them down in your idea books. And there is, you will be looking for customer frictions in Observer Learn. Now, people have to change their behavior to buy your innovation. Now, why should they change their behavior? They will only when you solve a problem for them. So you shouldn't be looking for ideas. You should be looking for problems for customers. That's what you do in Observe and Learn. And then the third phase will, you know, Observe and Learn will get you outside the box. And then you share all your ideas and raise ideas. Now, a two-week, big ideation workshop of two days is in there. Um, You'll get 750 ideas. And, you know, we will um, converge them into, at the end, 12 concepts. Now, here you are outside of the box, but, you know, are they good ideas or not? Well, I learned to use the voice of the customer as Early as possible in the innovation process so that's why we go directly to customers and test those concepts that you do in a fourth phase test ideas you test concepts get feedback and you to choose the top three to five one now you end with homecoming now you notice the people on the board level or the vice presidents they aren't really interested in new concept they are interested in bringing back new business so that's what you should do so here you Put all those outside the box ideas inside the box again, you know, making the abnormal normal normal and uh, make a business case for them and making very concrete what what um, the innovation board can expect when they say yes to your proposal. So you return here with three to five, what I call mini new business cases. So that's F-O-R-T-H for homecoming. That's fourth. And you do
0: that in around 20 weeks. So one of the things that I thought was intriguing in the book, and you put a big emphasis on testing, it's the fourth letter in the fourth innovation method, because as it turns out, even once we have a bunch of ideas, we're not always that good at knowing what people will actually want. So what have studies found about how far off we are from actually being able to select the right ideas ourselves?
1: Well, we are far off. You know (laughs) why? You know why? Because we fall in love with our ideas. That's the point. We can't be very objective. And what helps is having a smart innovation assignment. Right there, you have the criteria, and but often, you know, it's more an intuition or a feeling, and you forget about all the hard criteria of profit potential, or revenue potential, or feasibility. Even um, now, if you work too long on ideas which will not be liked by the market, you waste a lot of effort, you waste a lot of money, you waste a lot of time. So that's why I love to get the customer in and let they judge your new concept, you know, will they buy it or not? That's the question. So that's why I think we are very lousy at, at uh, making a ranking of our ideas ourselves. And I've done 35 fourths in the, the last years. And every time it's the same pattern, the ranking of customers is totally different than the ranking the company makes of its ideas.
0: So one of my favorite anecdotes from the book was about the famous Nintendo game designer Shigeru Miyamoto, who is famous for Chabodai Gaishi. Sorry if I mispronounced that totally, but that literally means, quote-unquote, upending the tea table. And figuratively, as you put it in the book, means stop and start all over from zero, so can you, can you tell how that philosophy of his led to two of arguably the most well-known characters in the history of video games?
1: Yeah, well, we're talking here about, um, you know, Super Mario. And, you know, he's also been the inventor of the, of the Wii. And um, uh, my book is a story about Wii Fit. Um, yeah, well, he, he did, he did um, you know, Shigeru is a perfectionist. And he stayed very close to himself. He just asked the question, you know, what would I like? And he developed that. He said, why aren't those archived computer games, you know, why isn't there a story in it? So he made a story and that was Super Mario. And um, so the point is you have to start at zero again. So, you know, we are... We must go far outside the box, or and and start with start with an empty sheet again, right? So that's what he does, and he's he's only satisfied when it's perfect. And if it's not perfect, just throw it away and start all over again. That's his philosophy.
0: Okay, got it. And and uh, and Mario, which I did not know, but you as you told the story in the book, actually started out as a character in. Donkey Kong, he was the, I guess I maybe would have known that if I thought back to the to the very early days of playing video games, but uh, yeah. he was the carpenter chasing Donkey Kong up seven flights, I believe it was, uh, to that's get his it. girlfriend back.
1: That's it, that's it, yeah. Okay. yeah.
0: okay, so another thing that you talk about in the book is the importance of being able to think like a designer. So what are the five traits that designers have that you think everyone could benefit from employing when they're trying to come up with these innovative new ideas?
1: Hmm. Well, the first one is empathy. You have to be empathic. Um, innovating is all about having to do with customers and with people. Hmm. So, you know, what What do they think is important? You know, what are their frictions? And that's a great starting point. Now, the second one is integrative thinking. You know, it's... You have to combine all the elements, not only one, not only the design. It must, be, it must have a business model. It must have a great design. It must also be feasible. So you must be able to integrate it all. And the third one is optimism, of course. Right? Don't take no for an answer. Right? How challenging the constraints are, you know, just generate new ideas and, you know, be optimistic about it. On the other hand, you know, you have to experiment. Will it work or not? Well, just test it. Try it on small scale. So experimentalism is the fourth one. And the fifth one is collaboration. You know, collaborate with others and in the interaction and with all the knowledge of other people, you can
0: jointly create beautiful new concepts together. So as much as we'd like to think that everything can be planned for in advance, sometimes innovation is about luck as much as anything. In the book, you list 11 innovations that came about as a result of blind luck as much as anything else. Uh, can you share what a few of those were and do you have a favorite among the 11? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, you know, they, they have a, a beautiful word for it. It's called uh, serendipity, right? So it's, uh, as you could say, it's kind of a happy accident. Um, There are all kinds of happy accidents in history, you know, Alexander Fleming, you know, he discovered penicillin due to a happy accident. Well, the pacemaker was also one of them, or plastics, or the Wheaties, or, you know, cornflakes, or everybody will know, you know, the Post-it notes uh, story about, uh, about Spencer Silver who tried to develop a super strong adhesive. And he finds something completely the opposite way, which his colleague used to mark pages in his hymn book. Um, my favorite one is a drink we all know—it's Coca-Cola. So, uh, pharmacist John Pemberton, you know, he wasn't trying to make a, to make a, a lemonade. You know, he was trying to make a cure for headaches in 1886. So he mixed together all those ingredients. Mm. It took him then eight years of being, get it being sold in a drugstore, you know, in bottles. And, um, well, the rest is history, right? We all know Coca-Cola now. Um, but it's more than only luck. You know, that if you look at all those people I mentioned, they had one thing in common. And they were searching for something. So, you know, go out there searching and you'll find something. It might be the opposite of what you're looking for, but it might be better.
0: So there was one point in the book where I literally laughed out loud, and it was when you were giving instructions on setting up a brainstorming session. And you said, never, and I mean never, hold a brainstorming session in the office. Why should you hold brainstorming sessions somewhere else other than where you are on a daily basis?
1: Yeah, you know, in the office. You're in the office there with the same colleagues. You were there four weeks ago trying to find a solution. And it will never work because you will, you know, you're on, you're on common ground. And if you want to have inspiration, you know, you don't get it. inspiration in, 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 an, in a room without any windows, you know, in, sitting behind tables. You have to get yourself in a new environment to get new ideas. And the brainstorm isn't just everybody shouting to each other without listening you know that's a carefully planned process so be wise you know and get a good process postpone your judgment get a good location or just don't call it a brainstorm just calling yeah just call it a yelling session at each other
0: (laughs) okay great and uh another thing that that i would love to ask about i you you mention in the book, or you tell many stories about great uh, about great explorers really throughout time of both Earth and space. Uh, and one that I thought was very interesting was the race to the South Pole, where uh, you know there, there were basically two teams that were going for it. One was an amateur who really didn't know what he was doing, but he but he took the time to plan ahead, put wooden planks in his skis, and you know was the first to to get to the South Pole. So what was the difference between you know, the kind of underdogs and the people who should have made it in that case?
1: Well, the the underdog was Amundsen, and the upper dog was Scott, a British Amish Army officer. Now, this is my favorite story. Um, Amundsen won. Unfortunately, Scott died on his way back from the South Pole. Um, why did Amundsen win? Um, Amundsen took... Dogs to the South Pole and Scott took ponies and the first diesel tractors to the South Pole. Now, the diesel tractors they froze within two days. Now, for pulling the carts, you know, um, Scott brought ponies. Now, ponies are rather heavy and you have snow bridges on the South Pole. So, when a pony walked on a snow bridge, he fell through, he took the cart with him. Bye bye, pony, and bye bye for all the food who was on it. And the second thing is, well, what do ponies eat?
0: Uh, hay or grass.
1: How much grass is there on the South Pole? <laughs> uh,
0: I'm guessing not a lot. I'm guessing none.
1: Not a lot, no. Yeah. Now, Amundsen took dogs. He, saw the, he was the year before um, uh, with the Goya discovering the Northwest route along Canada, and he was with the Inuit for a year. Now, the interesting point is, you know, what do dogs eat?
0: Uh, dog food or wild game, I guess. So you could probably.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what is dog food made of? Uh,
0: you know, I'm ashamed to say it. Well, I guess I'm not ashamed to say it, but I don't know. What's the answer?
1: Well, well, well you know, dogs eat meat. And what right. are dogs made of? Meat. Meat. Wow, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, so, Anson, you know, he left with four 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 carts, each with 13 dogs and five men. And he returned with one cart, 13 dogs and five men. He fed the weaker dogs to keep the strong dogs strong. Well, that's clever. And that has everything to do with preparation, with observe and learn from the Inuit. So he learned how to survive on the North Pole and applied that to the South Pole instead of Scott, who was, you know, the British Army officer and, you know, who did it the scientific army way, which didn't work at the South Pole, unfortunately. So that's my favorite story, and that's about preparation, and it's about observe and learn. When you try to conquer new markets, so go out there first and open your mind and learn what it's like to be there before you start ideating all kinds of ideas, which are complete nonsense.
0: Yeah, teaches you also to to be lean and nimble, to think outside the box. And uh, I guess the story of feeding the dogs to the dogs could almost be taken as a um, metaphor for only choosing the very best ideas.
1: Yes, yes. That's also a nice one.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Thanks thanks for that, Will. (laughs) Well, please feel free to use it anytime. Okay, so... Heist, let me ask you, right off and on LinkedIn, you're a top influencer there with close to 200,000 followers. Your posts are very popular. You write about the future of technology, the future of our lives. One of your recent posts, uh, you shared a link to a Thomson Reuters article on 10 predictions to expect by the year 2025. So as a child of the 80s who watched Back to the Future when I was a kid and really wanted that flying car, the one that really caught my eye was electric transportation finally takes off. So, any idea on where we are with getting that flying car to market?
1: Yeah, well, you can order it now, Will. You know, the Fugia will be launched in 2015. No. You only have to do a $10,000 deposit. And you paid it 269000
0: other dollars next year. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the... Uh, the 10,000, maybe, the 269,000, that's going to be a problem. That, that will take some innovative thinking on my part. And
1: yeah, well, that doesn't matter. You know, uh, you need some challenges. <laughs> uh, you know, the point is it's not electric yet, but, you know, it will be introduced. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, the flying car will be there next year.
0: So what were some of the other points that were in that article, if you remember them off the top of your head?
1: Uh, a lot of them had to do with health and with food. Okay. And, um, um, we will make some huge steps in health and in healthcare, and some huge step in the in the in the way we um, the way we are able to provide everybody in the world for food. So there will be um, um, the food shortages in 2025, and the food price fluctuation will be things of the past. Um, um, healthcare, you know, in 2025, dementia will decline. Um, in 2025, type 1 diabetes will be preventable. Um, and we will do some great things to the earth, why, because solar will be the largest source of energy on the planet. And also, you know, petroleum based packaging will be history. So cellulose derived packaging will rule the world in 2025. So the most uh, most of the prediction of, of um, um Thomson Reuters has to do with food and with with medicine.
0: Okay. Good deal. So are are there topics that you write about that tend to get more interaction, more likes, more comments that seem to be more popular with readers than than anything else?
1: Yeah, I will, yeah. You know, Innovation is so frustrating why your boss have to say yes, otherwise nothing happens, Will. Now you have a boss too, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. I, I have I have a few.
1: You have a few even, oh my god. <laughs> you know, so the difficult point is how to get internal support for your ideas. And that's that's the most difficult point. You know. What we presume is that that, you know, Everybody wants to innovate always, and that's so wrong. We only want to innovate when we have to. So as innovator, you have to wait for the right moment till there is some need within the company. You know, if we can't earn the money the easy way, you know, then we will only choose for the hard way. And innovation is the hard way because the failure rate is so high. So you have to wait for the right moment, prepare your case very well, and let your boss be a co-father or co-mother or co-creator of the idea, because when it's his or hers, you know, they will share in also the benefits of it, and then they will support it. Now Those are the articles most read, and that's on, on, in big corporates, how can I get internal support for my wonderful ideas?
0: Okay, got it. And and <clears throat> and once it becomes an imperative, obviously go out and buy the book, uh, The Innovation Expedition by Heis van Wolfen. It's available on, on Amazon. Uh, I read it cover to cover, and it's a uh, it's a great read. So Heis, we're, we're running a little low on time uh, as we get to the point where we need to wrap things up. Any any final words of wisdom for uh, for people and companies out there that are looking to to figure out how to set forth on their innovation expedition?
1: Well, you know, I would end, like to end with something else, um, if that's okay. Will, you know, sure, of course. Um, you know, innovation doesn't stop at the first no. You know, that's the moment it really starts. Now, don't take no for an answer.
0: All right, those are uh, that's a that's a good simple note to close on. Uh, follow Heis van Wolfen on LinkedIn. The name is spelled G I J S and then V A N w u l f e n as we mentioned earlier the author of the innovation expedition a visual toolkit to start innovation you can also find him on twitter at at heiss van wolfen as i spelled it out before uh, and the website is uh the website is Heis. help me out here fourth yes. fourth hyphen innovation.com
1: that's it f-o-r-t-h yes
0: okay great well heiss thanks so much for coming on today uh Great pleasure. words of wisdom for, uh, for the Innovation Expedition and Innovation Podcast listeners out there. Okay. Thank you, Will. Thanks again to Heiss Van Wolfen for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have New York Times best-selling author Michael Gelb on the podcast to talk about the connection between innovation and creativity. How approaching problems with the right mindset can make all the difference in the world. How harnessing your chi can help you unlock creativity you didn't know you had. And the importance of play in helping us all maintain our creative muscle. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next week.